Welcome to Street Talk with Wine Spectator, a new podcast from the world's most widely read wine magazine. On Straight Talk, we bring the pages of Wine Spectator to life, from the latest vintages of the world's best wines to in-depth interviews with the world's best winemakers. We'll also be answering your questions, covering the latest wine industry news, and much more. The online store is going crazy. They had to shutter it like a couple hours later because I think they ran out of wine. Have you ever looked at your 401k and said, boy, I wish I had invested this money in wine? Mm, every day. <laughs> he went around Northern California with acid and an eyedropper looking for limestone to plant Pinot Noir. I, I assume when you say acid, it's hydrochloric acid looking for limestone, not the lysergic acid, which would be looking for the mystery of life or something. That yeah. would be correct. <laughs> I'm James Molesworth. Senior Editor and Special Projects Director for Wine Spectator. And in this episode of Straight Talk, we're highlighting our December 31, 2022 issue. And drumroll, please. Wine Spectator's Top 100 Wines of the Year. Our Top 100 issue is one of our biggest of the year, celebrating outstanding wines from around the world. We select our annual Top 100 Wines from the thousands of samples we've blind tasted over the past 12 months, taking into account not just the quality and price, but also availability and what we like to call the X-Factor, or the story behind the wine. Our list isn't a bad place to start if you're looking for a holiday wine-buying guide, and you can find the full list of the Top 100 Wines of 2022 at top100.winespectator.com. And you'll be hearing a lot more about it in this very special end-of-the-year episode of Straight Talk. But that's not all we've got for you today. We'll be joined later by Wine Spectator Senior Editor for News, Mitch Frank. He's going to be telling us about how rising prices for collectible wines have turned them into a potential investment opportunity. And we'll also be taking a look back at some of the people the wine industry lost this year. As always, joining me for our year-end ride is our trusty podcast director, Rob Taylor. Welcome back, Rob. Always a pleasure to be here, James. Thank you. That'll be an interesting chat with Mitch later. Is, is that something you're into? Are you playing the wine investment market? You know, I do buy a lot of wine, but I'm not a flipper. My only return on investment is in the form of a perfectly poured glass. Guaranteed returns. I like that. Yep. And we've got a special guest star today. I told you we were bringing him in on our last episode. Longtime Wine Spectator Senior Editor Bruce Sanderson. Bruce! He's been overseeing our annual Top 100 list for uh, about as long as I can remember, I guess. Welcome, Bruce. Hey, guys. Happy to be here. You joined Wine Spectator back in 1993, and you're our lead taster for Burgundy, Tuscany, and Piedmont. You got all the truffle regions. I noticed that. And you also bring a bit of international flair to our staff. Tell us a little bit about your background and how you came into wine. Well, I was born and raised in Canada, not a truffle country. <laughs> uh, I grew up in Hamilton, Ontario, uh, which is a steel town. I spent most of my early days and teens playing hockey. But I became interested in wine while I was working a couple of holidays at the LCBO, which is the provincial monopoly for wine and spirits. And then um, I, I spent some time in Germany, and while I was living there in the mid-'80s, I uh, really fell in love with wine. In 1987, I did the German Wine Academy course, and that took me to several wineries and wine regions in Germany, and that got me really hooked. Um, I wrote an article about the experience, in fact, and I sent it to Wine Spectator. I think it was in, like, the spring of 1988. Uh, of course, it was never published. Uh -huh. uh, it was just, you know, it was an unsolicited manuscript or whatever they sure. called them in those yeah. days. But uh, little did I know at the time that we'd be sitting here today after 29 years with the magazine. It all worked out. 
Amazing. But that wasn't what brought you here, was it? Then in 1990, I moved to New York. I was still working as a model and actor at the time, and I, I, I moved to New York to pursue that. But I also thought, okay, let me get involved in some wine part-time. And uh, I started working at Burgundy Wine Company and as a sommelier at Windows on the World. And I was at Windows on the World in 91 and 92 uh, before I landed in our tasting room, which was a, a year later in late 93. You mentioned Burgundy Wine Company. Isn't that where you and James met? Yeah, I hadn't been working there very long when we hired this skinny kid straight out of college. He listened <laughs> to jazz and smoked cigars, so we dubbed James the Young Fogey. Oh, wow. We're going way back <laughs> oh, boy. here. You know that, that first day on the job, I remember we had one of those uh, uh, cellar access doors in the sidewalk, and they opened it up, and they put this giant wood plank down there. And they start shooting cases down the ramp at me. <laughs> and they were wooden cases. This is my first day on the job. I had no idea what was going on. And I kind of was like, wow, I'm, I'm going to get my ass kicked today. And Bruce hands me his leather work gloves and goes, it's your first day. I'm letting you borrow these. Starting tomorrow, you get your own. And uh, <laughs> You definitely needed those gloves with the wooden boxes. <laughs> and uh, here we are 30-some-odd uh, years uh, later in the same tasting room at Wine Spectator. But uh, enough reminiscing. Let's, uh, let's slice and dice this top 100 a bit. Uh, Bruce, let's paint the picture for our listeners about how this list gets made. We, we tasted about 9,000 wines this year, and anything that scores 90 up is the first cut for the list. But that only cuts down the number of wines that we tasted this year to about 5,000. So where do you go from there since you're the lead guy on this? We look at a number of factors. Obviously quality based on score, but also value based on price and availability based on either cases made or cases imported into the United States. But most importantly, the passion and dedication of vintners and the backstory of the wines, what we call X-Factor. And all the editors sort of pitch their individual choices for the top 100. They give it all to you, and you, you have a lot to boil down. It's really one of the most internally discussed topics amongst the, the Wine Spectator editors. And in the end, the top 100 is sort of like our, our yearbook slash shopping list, right? Yeah, exactly. For example, one of the wines I like this year is the 2019 Calera Pinot Noir from Jensen Vineyard. Calera founder and California Pinot Noir pioneer Josh Jensen passed away earlier this year. He fell in love with Burgundy, and the story goes that he went around Northern California with acid and an eyedropper looking for limestone to plant Pinot Noir. I, I assume when you say acid, it's hydrochloric acid looking for limestone, not the lysergic acid. Yes, which would be looking for the mystery of life or something. That yeah. would be correct. <laughs> Josh was a, a character and a pioneer for sure. And it's interesting, current Calera winemaker Mike Waller worked with him uh, before Jensen sold the winery to the Duckhorn portfolio. And Waller's done a great job of not only following Jensen's idea, but you know, moving the winery ahead on its own path too. And it's, it's a great pick for the top 100, that Calera. That's one of the fun things about the top 100 list. There's something special about every selection. And you can read about each one of them in our December 31 issue. But... Before we get into the good stuff, Rob, let me remind our audience that Straight Talk with Wine Spectator is a free podcast, and we have a sponsor to thank for that. This episode is brought to you by Chubb. Storms, fires, water leaks, flooding, no one wants that kind of disaster. But if you have personal insurance for your home or cars with Chubb, when crisis strikes, you won't ever be treated as just a number. That's why 96% of Chubb clients with a paid claim are highly satisfied with their experience. Ready to raise your expectations for your insurance company? Visit Chubb.com today. Wow, you're like a real podcast host now, James. <laughs> Hitting new milestones with every episode. 
Now, before I let you two geek out on the full top 100, let's quickly run through our top 10 wines of the year. And you can find Wine Spectator's full top 100 list, along with the scores, prices, tasting notes, and tons of articles and videos about those wines, all for free at top100.winespectator.com. All right, Rob, lay them on us. Let's do the, the top 10 countdown. Wine Spectator's number 10 wine for 2022 is the 2014 Cristal Champagne. Some baller champagne. We actually discussed that in episode three with the winemaker, Jean-Baptiste Lacayon. At number nine, the 2018 Cabernet from Washington State's Kilsada Creek. Mm-hmm. Number eight is one of two Super Tuscans in the top ten. That's right. Uh, Fattoria Le Pupile Sefredi 2019 is a Cabernet-based blend from Tuscany's coastal Morema region. At seven is the 2019 Beaucastel Chateauneuf de Pop. We'll be talking about France's Rhone Valley in our next episode. Mm-hmm. And at number six is the 2019 Robert Mondavi Cabernet, the yeah. estates bottling. Right. And folks, if you haven't already, you might want to go back and check out our episode two for the full story on the Mondavi legacy and why this particular new bottling from the winery is such a noteworthy return to form. At number five is another Super Tuscan, Antonori's 2019 Tignanello. Yeah, Tignanello was a game changer for Tuscany and for Italian wines in general when it debuted in the 1970s. Number four is a Bordeaux, the 2019 Talbot. Yeah, from the Saint-Julien Appalachian. You know, you don't need to chase first-growth Bordeaux, folks. At 65 bucks and 95 points, you can't beat Talbot for a seller-worthy Bordeaux bottling at a square price. And I'm going to have a lot more hot tips on the 2020 vintage in Bordeaux in our March issue and uh, the episode that we have in conjunction with that. And now we're down to the top three wines of 2022. Number three is a Napa Chardonnay, the 2019 HDV Hyde Vineyard. Mm -hmm. Number two is a more traditional Italian red. Help me out again, Bruce. Fattoria di Barbie Brunello di Montalcino Reserva 2016. Barbie's been on a roll over the last decade, and all the stars aligned in 2016. And James, would you care to do the honors for our wine of the year? Why not? It earned 94 points and cost just around 80 bucks a bottle. It's another great value for its class, and that's California Cabernet. Wine Spectator's 2022 wine of the year is the 2019 Schrader Cellars Double Diamond Cabernet Sauvignon, made by one of Napa's biggest winemaking stars, Thomas Rivers Brown. This is the first time one of his Schrader wines has appeared in our annual top 10, and it's not one of the high-priced, top-of-the-line bottlings. It's his economy line second wine which is much easier to find, or at least it was prior to the announcement. And that's the reason it was selected, because it's a terrific value in a category that basically starts at 100 bucks and goes up quickly. And we caught up with TRB, as uh, Thomas Brown is known to his friends, and he told us how he found out he'd made our wine of the year. I was on the phone with someone, and uh, text. I could hear a text pop up, bing, beep, whatever. So did what everyone does, ignored the phone conversation to look down at my text. Um, and it said, congrats, wine of the year. And it so was off my radar. It didn't even register what they were talking about. So I just look at it and I'm like, oh, great. And I start talking again with whoever's on the phone. And I'm also trying to process at the same time what this text means. And just like everyone else, I'd been watching the daily reveal on the Spectator website. So I'm looking at this. I saw Madavi um, got, you know, wine number six. And I'm looking at all these other things. Cristal got 10. I love that champagne. Currently, maybe my favorite champagne. And then so I'm like, wine of the year? What, what could that mean? And then finally it clicks. I'm like, oh, wine spectator wine of the year. I cannot for the life of me guess what wine it would have been. And then I look back at my phone. It's Jason Smith, who's the GM for Schrader and Double Diamond. I'm like, this is qu- quite obviously the 19 Double Diamond. 
and I hustle off the phone because my t- phone starts to blow up at this point. And people are calling, texting, emailing. I'm trying to get back to people as quick as I can. People are like, oh, you know, congratulations. One guy, I think he was being sarcastic, said, you know, so nice. You finally caught a break in the wine world, all this other kind of stuff. So I'm just receiving all this communication like second by second. It was and it was all super positive. So great for the brand. Um, of course, I own my own little brand and some other stuff. So you think about the financial ramifications of this, too, which is maybe an impolite thing to talk about. But I'm talking to the GM at um, Double Diamond, and he's just like, yeah, the online store is going crazy. Um, they had to shutter it like a couple hours later because I think they ran out of wine. And it just goes to show you the impact of of the Wine Spectator and the number of eyeballs, not just on the website, but now that the print editions uh, coming out, I'm still getting notes from people. And uh, it's totally revitalized the Double Diamond brand. So the impact is crazy. I think there's... A thousand new mailing list signups. There's all kinds of chaos sort of around it, but but an incredible positive impact. Nothing but positive impact, and just great to see. I mean, it's something I didn't think would ever happen for me because most of the wines I make are really small production. They can be a little more expensive, harder to get, and then you see a, a wine like Double Diamond with that combination of quantity, quality, and price, and the story with Tokelon and all that other kind of stuff. I think it was just the perfect confluence of several different characteristics that sort of help propel that wine to number one. You know, our top 10 and wine of the year honors can really change the lives of the folks behind these bottles. And it can also move the market if you're into collecting and selling wine. We're going to talk a little bit more about that later. But first, we're going to dig a little deeper into this year's top 100 and highlight a few of the wines that we think are particularly interesting. The lion's share of this year's top 100 list comes from the 2019 vintage, representing nearly 50% of the list. And the 2020 vintage represents nearly a quarter of the list. That all makes sense since we're reviewing the new release wines. In addition, 13 countries are represented, so lots of diversity. The U.S. leads the way, followed by Italy and France. Bruce, when I was making my initial picks this year, I was looking, of course, at the regions I cover. So we had Cabernet and Pinot from California in the 2019 vintage, plus the 2020 Bordeaux. What jumped out for you when you started to put the list together from your perspective? For me, the most exciting regions and categories this year were California, not just Cabernet Sauvignon, but Chardonnay and Pinot Noir, too, France's Rhone Valley, and Tuscany in Italy. I also like the fact that half the list is made up of wineries making their debut, and we are acknowledging new trends in packaging, like wines in cans. Do you have some specific wines, Bruce, that that opened your eyes this year? There are 20 wines from Italy in this year's Top 100, and two of my favorites are Gratamaco, Bulgari Superiore 2019, and Pecanino Nebbiolo Langi Bati 2021. Okay, you gave the Gratamaco 97 points, and it costs $100. That's our number 12 wine of the year. Gratamaco is one of the historic estates in Bulgari. It's a blend of Cabernet Sauvignon, Merlot, and Sangiovese, and a wine I think flies under the radar and really should be better known to Tuscan wine lovers. And that Pecanino is more wallet-friendly at $25.90 points. It's number 73 on our list. All right, we know you're the man to see for Tuscany and Piedmont, Bruce. Any picks beyond Italy? I love the Gaston Chiquet Brut Champagne tradition non-vintage. It's a classic blend of Pinot Meunier, Chardonnay, and Pinot Noir from chalk soils with long aging on the lees. That Gaston Chiquet bottling is also on the value end for Champagne at $44, mm-hmm. which helps it earn the number 86 spot on our list. What about you, James? Where's the excitement for you? Well, sitting at number 14, I would point out the Philip Tawny Cabernet Sauvignon 2019. 
Philip Tawney, uh, who runs this domain, is now 96 years young. He's still very wow. hands-on. Yeah, He works with his daughter, Lisa. And this is the emphatic answer to people who say they think all California cabs are just fruit bombs. It's an old-school wine, uh, mountain fruit, which gives it a lot more of that uh, rugged tannin and racy acidity, along with savory, menthol, earth notes in the mix. And it ages beautifully. It really is one of the iconic wines in Napa that doesn't come from the valley floor. Then there's the legendary Rhone producer, Jean-Louis Chave, who cracks our list this year. Essentially, his hermitage is too expensive to make the list. You know, we have to have a bit of a price cap because we want people to really be able to find these bottlings and, and buy them relatively easily. But his Saint-Joseph is a different approach uh, to getting Chave into your cellar. It's a wine he spent 20 years replanting vineyards for, basically. It's a kind of a mini hermitage from similar granite soils. And the 2018 which is the one that we've selected, costs under 90 bucks. It earned a classic 95-point rating, and it's checking in at number 37 on the list. And then further down, I'd point to number 77, the Clos Sibon Tiberin Cote de Provence Rosé Cuvée Tradition. They have a couple of cuvées. This is their entry level at 37 bucks and 91 points. Might seem a little pricey for rosé, but that category is moving up in general, and this makes our list because it's not your typical basic pink Provençal rosé. It's aged under a little bit of floor, uh, which gives it an oxidative note, and it shows just how lovely a serious rosé can be. James, my wine IQ spidey sense is tingling. Can you tell us what a floor is? It's not the thing you're walking on. That's a double <laughs> O-R. This is floor with a single O, and it's actually a yeast that uh, sits at, on, in a level on top of the wine in cask, and it's most known and most used in sherry, which gives sherry that sort of very saline, oxidative, slightly nutty note. It right. can be used in other methods of wine production carefully, um, but yeah, it's an oxidative approach, and it can be quite beautiful. Very cool. Uh, nice picks all around, gents. Of course, we think all 100 selections deserve our readers' attention, but the market tends to really home in on our top 10 and, of course, our annual wine of the year, many of which have gone on to substantially increase in price. In a moment, we're going to be joined by senior editor for news Mitch Frank to talk about that. And we've got lots more to come as well. But in the meantime, thanks for joining us today, Bruce, and enjoy the holidays, my friend. The Bruiser, thanks for coming in. Thanks, guys. It was great to be here. Keep up the great work on Straight Talk and have a great holiday break. What's new in the world of wine? Wine Spectator is the leading source for wine industry news and trends. From big-name wineries changing hands to wine country wildfires, we'll catch you up on the most important need-to-know news for wine lovers. And helping us out today, as usual, is the Wine Spectator's senior editor for news, Mitch Frank, joining us from his home office in the Big Easy New Orleans. How you doing, Mitch? Hey, James. Hey, Rob. Thanks for having me back. Yeah, good to have you. You know, we've been covering our top 100 wines of the year in this episode, and many of them are, are great values. But there are also plenty of high-priced collectibles on the list, too. You know, the... 2019 Tignanello came in at number five, for example. Um, and when they get a spot in our top 10, we've seen that these wines can end up you know, being worth quite a bit more money down the road over their initial release prices. Now, one way people can sell their wines is via the auction market, both the traditional auction houses and the online auctions. They control a pretty big marketplace for wine, what we refer to as the secondary market. But in recent years, we have seen a new development, wine investment funds. So, Mitch, you got to help us out. What's the deal with these wine investment funds? Well, James, have you ever looked at your 401k and said, boy, I wish I had invested this money in wine? Mm, every day? <laughs> <laughs> wine investment funds are an alternative investment vehicle, and they're becoming more and more popular in the U.S. What you're buying is shares in a wine fund. The fund managers buy collectible wines upon release, 
hold the wines in bonded warehouses, and then sell them in a few years once the wines have theoretically reached their peak value. Uh, the wine fund managers point to their recent track record versus the stock market. Uh, the LiveX 1000, a composite of the most widely traded investment-grade wines, is up almost 4% this year. S&P 500, it's down almost 16%. That's interesting. Uh, the LiveX wine index you mentioned uh, has become a pretty important tool in the industry for tracking the value up for these wine funds and other things like that. And I noticed a flurry of activity there when our top 10 wines of 2022 were revealed last month. The secondary market price for the 2019 Beau Castel, for instance, which was our number seven wine, that nearly doubled from its release price of about $120 to nearly $240. And likewise, there were some other really eye-opening jumps, uh, nearly 50% for the 2019 Talbot, more than 30% for the Tignanello, and so on. And for our wine of the year, this slightly different look, I, you know, one of the reasons we selected it was because of its 10,000 case production, its $80 price point means anyone can find it, and, and it's a, a relative value in California Cabernet. That was before the announcement. I did a scan of retailers uh, that still have it listing, and it's between one fifty and three hundred fifty dollars a bottle. So there's a there's a lot of jumps there. There certainly seems to be a way to, for people to collect and make money, but there's still a buyer beware here, right? Have you bought any cryptocurrency lately? <laughs> no. <laughs> Seriously, though, wine lovers need to do their homework and read the fine print. Uh, these funds all have fees, and you should know what they are. They also have rules that prevent investors from selling their shares before the fund is ready to sell the wine. Mm -hmm. Then there's the risk of outright fraud. In June, the FBI arrested a British man for allegedly swindling over $13 million from more than 150 victims in multiple U.S. states. Basically, he and his team are accused of cold-calling elderly people and promising them big profits on wine and whiskey that the fund managers supposedly were going to buy and hold in a bonded U.K. warehouse. They, they didn't buy any wine. Hmm. Our coverage of that fraud story was among our top articles of the year over at winespectator.com. We'll have all sorts of year in review coverage there in the coming weeks, including our annual In Memoriam feature. We mentioned earlier in the episode that California Pinot Noir pioneer Josh Jensen passed away earlier this year. Also uh, passing away earlier this year, prominent Burgundy negociant and 11th generation Maison Louis Latour president Louis Fabrice Latour passed away at the age of 58. Yeah, and another California legend died this year, Fred Franzia, co-founder of Bronco Wine Company, who's probably most famous for popularizing two-buck chuck. Franzia was a, a brash and rather polarizing figure, but he introduced a lot of new drinkers to California wine. He will not be soon forgotten. That's all the news we have time for in this episode of Straight Talk. For all of our latest coverage and breaking news, visit winespectator.com and sign up for our free email newsletters. Thanks, Mitch. Hey, thanks, James and Rob. Good talking to you all. Have a happy new year, and I'll see you all in 2023. James, if I'm not mistaken, I'm just in time to catch Dr. Vinny during her office hours. I think you do have a few minutes. Uh, <laughs> tell her I said hi. I, I like that you checked your watch. <laughs> I'm just looking at the office hours. <laughs> Hi, Rob. I'm so happy you decided to visit me during my office hours this time. And yet you still paged me. I just like to push the button. Uh-huh. What are you writing? Oh, don't worry about that. Um, so what brings you in today? <laughs> well, we were talking about our wine of the year earlier, and James referred to the Schrader Double Diamond as a second wine. 
Can you shed some light on that second wine concept? Sure. A second wine or second label is just what it sounds like. It's not a winery's signature or flagship wine. It's like a second cut or second string wine. If you're familiar with the concept of reserve bottling of a winery's more expensive, higher quality wine, a second label is basically the opposite of that. The practice has its roots in the late 1800s and seems to have started in France's Bordeaux region, where the top wine is often referred to as the Grand Van. And that's not like an awesome van that someone might live in down by the river? <laughs> no, that's van as in the French word for wine spelled V-I-N. Like your name. Wait a second. Moving on, the juice from the best grapes go into the best barrels, and the top bottling is made from the best barrels of wine. But there's often still some great leftover wine that doesn't make it into the final blend. That leftover wine can be bottled as a second wine. I get it. And I'm guessing that those junior varsity wines don't cost as much? <laughs> exactly. Those JV second wines typically cost a fraction of the price of a winery's top bottling, which means they can sometimes be a great value, even if they aren't necessarily cheap. And you mentioned Bordeaux earlier, and I know Bordeaux has first growths and second growths. That's a different thing, right? Yeah, that's a whole other thing. The 1855 classification of Bordeaux ranked the chateaus. Although many of the Bordeaux first growths and second growths do also make a second wine, I don't want to get off track. I think you have your annual Bordeaux checkup scheduled for early next year. We can come back to that. Thanks, Dr. Venny. I'll see you in March. And since this is our last episode of the year, I thought we'd revisit one of your most popular questions of 2022. Is it okay if a chilled bottle of wine warms back up to room temperature? Yeah, that is definitely a very common question. I think there's an urban myth that beer or wine will get skunky if you chill it and then it warms back up. That's not true. It's totally fine to take a bottle of wine out of the fridge or cellar and then change your mind and save it for another day. Of course, if you want to learn more about proper wine storage, check out the Wine IQ section at winespectator.com including, of course, my Dr. Vinny archives. I also talk about how light, vibration, or extreme temperatures can harm your wine, and even why some bottles are made from different colors of glass. Hey, wait. I want to hear the one about the different colors of glass. You can go to the website, Rob. I'm a very busy doctor. But all of our curious listeners are welcome to email their questions at straighttalk at winespectator.com. Be well, my friends, and have a happy new year. Thanks, Dr. Vinny. James, before you wrap us up for the year, I have a little pop quiz here. Are you up for an all-time top 100 trivia challenge? Oof, you want me to play Stump the Chump? Do I have a, do I have a choice here? <laughs> hey, I didn't call it that. <laughs> okay, just so you know, I focus group these questions on a select group of your colleagues. Mm -hmm. And the responses ranged from, how would anyone know that, to, that's too easy. All right, am I going to start with an easy one? Yeah, we're going to start you with softball. Okay. In 1997, we had two wines of the year, co-wines of the year. Mm -hmm. What were they? They were the 94 Taylor, Fladgate, and Fonseca Ports. They were co-wines of the year. They both got 100 points. That is correct. Mm -hmm. Since we started naming a wine of the year in 1988, nearly 20 of them have been Cabernets. But after Cabernet, which grape is the most represented among wines of the year? 
and I'll give you a hint. Okay. There have been four of them. Ooh. I'm gonna go with um I'm gonna go with Pinot Noir. Pinot Noir is incorrect. Oof. And uh we'll have another question about that later. Then a second choice would be Chardonnay. Incorrect. Wow. And this is the real stumper, especially you're gonna kick yourself. The grape that has been named wine of the year four times mm-hmm. is Grenache. Wow. So we've got we've got one clot of pop. Clot of pop. An 89 Beaucastel, Gigal's Chateauneuf, and yep. then the Saxum. That's right. Yeah. Yes. The Saxum. Wow. Sneaky. Okay. I, you know, I've always said Grenache is the best grape, and I feel like this, this puts a little more weight behind my, my hot take. Grenache for days. All right. Let me give you another one. This one this one should be a little easier. Okay. This is the last one, right? This is... So I can only embarrass myself one more time. We'll, we'll see what happens. <laughs> <laughs> Two wineries have the honor of making our wine of the year twice. Came as special select and Behringer Private Reserve. Uh, you are correct. Yes. Uh, the second Behringer Private Reserve wine of the year was the Chardonnay. Well done. Back on track. Back okay. on track. Back on track. Uh, I, and I have one more for you, which is because cause you guessed Pinot Noir earlier, which is the obvious guess. Mm. Can you name? We've only had one Pinot Noir wine of the year. Only one Pinot Noir is wine of the year. Um. That was uh, Costa Brown. That's correct. Yeah. Right. James, congratulations. You are you are the top contender for my 2022 Wine Critic of the Year. <laughs> podcast division. Yes. Pod- <laughs> <laughs> congratulations. As a reminder to our listeners, the December 31 issue of Wine Spectator isn't just about the top 100. It also features Dr. Venny's, uh, I mean, Marianne Robiek's Australian Tasting mm-hmm. Report and Tim Fish's U.S. Sparkling Wines Report. If you have questions for us or you just want to drop us a line, you can email us at straighttalk at winespectator.com. And don't forget to follow us on Facebook, Instagram, Twitter, and YouTube. James, do you want to let the Straight Talk fans know what's coming up next? Yeah, as we wrap it up here, our next issue and our next episode will be the first issue of 2023. And it's got our value wine of the year for 2022, which is something we started doing last year. Everyone still loves a great value, and the January-February issue we put out is going to be chock-a-block with big values. We also have uh, two annual tasting reports, Port. The 2020 Ports are coming out. Uh, I've just tasted through those. It's not a big vintage, but there are some great wines there. I just got back from Portugal uh, on a trip in October. And uh, in the studio, uh, we brought in Adrian Bridge of the Flatgate Partnership and Rupert Symington of Symington Estates. They basically represent two-thirds of all the quality port production out there between their two companies. So that's going to be a fun chat. And our other annual tasting report is on the Rhone Valley. Uh, I just got back from the Rhone Valley as well with my colleague, Kristen Beeler. I am turning over coverage to her. Most people know the Rhone is my favorite region, but I've got a little too much to do these days. So Kristen's going to take over for me, and we just went there. And we've got Philippe Gigal coming in the studio to chat Rhone with us. And before we wrap up, I've also got my sneak peek of the week, the Straight Talk exclusive on an exciting and yet-to-be-published wine review. Got your pens ready, folks. It's the Domaine de Bosquet Gigondas Reserve 2020. Now, this rated 92 points. It's 55 bucks. And the reason I'm giving you this tip is if you followed my Rhone coverage over the years, you know that I think Julien Brochet at Domaine de Bosquet is, is basically the new paradigm for Gigondas. He does a lot of single vineyard bottlings that, that are a little pricey and tough to find. This is his basic level, but it's not just leftovers that don't make the cut. What he does is he takes equally good fruit from the single vineyard bottlings and makes a blend. There's 2,000 cases of it out there. The Gigondas Reserve 2020 from Domaine de Bosquet. Another great tip from James Molesworth, as always. Thank you. Thank you. Until next time, thanks for joining us here on Straight Talk. This is James Molesworth wishing you all a happy holiday season. 
And as 2023 approaches, reminding you to always share when you drink the good stuff. 